our fifth grade teachers never saw us coming. My identical twin sister and I dressed alike from our hair barrettes to the striped tube socks on our feet on test days. We were fortunate that our specialty teachers were the same but in opposite subjects. So in the morning when our homeroom classes were dismissed to go to specialty, we would go to our normal class and take the first test of the day. In the afternoon, we'd return to that same teacher's classroom, but as the other sister, and take the test for a second time. We were leveraging only studying for one subject twice and keeping our grades up so that we could be on the honor roll. How did we know this twin plan would work? We'd already pulled it off in kindergarten. I know, that's so young. But we would also do it again our senior year of high school. We would also use this plan during college basketball games. We'd selected numbers that were so close together that if one of us was in foul trouble, the other one could go and replace where they had stood on the, on the court, and the ref would suddenly question, did I call that foul on 25 or 35? Ask Pastor Andrew sometime about twin play. Here's the deal. I don't feel good about remembering any of these moments, but I have to tell you, I'm pretty sure that the creative streetwise mastermind behind all of them was my twin sister. At least that's the way I remember it. Look at us. We're just a picture of innocence. Although my twin sister and I were crafty and not always in a good way, we are a reminder of the shrewd manager in today's parable. Guys, this is a crazy story. It's so bizarre. And as we know, Jesus uses parables as a teaching tool to cause people surprise that makes them scratch their heads and search their hearts. The reason we're all probably just shocked and stunned by this parable that we've just heard read is because we're trying to come to terms with the fact that Jesus is telling us to be like this conniving jerk we just heard about. He's actually saying to his disciples, I need you to think, behave, and act like this guy. Seriously, how is this dishonest manager in his monkey business getting our Messiah's stamp of approval? In order to understand that, we need to go back to this exact time and place and understand what Jesus was trying to teach his disciples in this moment. As we've heard over the last several weeks, Jesus has been using parables to teach people and the crowds have grown to massive proportions. And there's all kinds of people in these crowds. There's the tax collector, the sick, the lame, the town harlot, but there's also the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. And in this moment, the crowd has become a picture of what Jesus is so often going to teach about the sheep and the wolves. And these Pharisees are lurking, hanging out on the fringes of the crowd as Jesus is teaching. And this young rabbi is pulling his disciples closer for this special teaching moment that's going to astonish them when he tells the story of a rich man's admiration for his lazy, blundering, cowardly, and conniving manager's shrewd moves. Guys, the action gets going in Luke 16 too. So join me there if you have your Bible. Because this is the moment in the parable when the rich man calls for an account of the manager's wasteful use of his resources. Suddenly, this dishonest manager is in a crisis. And we sense his desperation and his urgency in his own words in verse 3. Suddenly, this manager is realizing, what is my future going to look like without this job? And he says these words. What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. 
I imagine it's been a long time since this guy has done any sort of manual labor. And he's not looking forward to going back to that kind of industry either. In the same way, he's not interested in going towards the Salvation Army and asking for any help or confessing to his family the error of his ways in his workplace. So I picture this man pacing in the space of his office, taking some deep and calming breaths, nice and slow, as he emotionally tries to come to terms with, with what he's just been called out on. But after a few moments, I think his brain shifted from the emotional side to the rational side. And he began to focus on his work, on what he knows about the accounts and the debts. And he came up with a super creative win-win solution, at least for himself and those in debt to his master. And it also is going to provide for him a hope for a future, which he is so in need of in this moment. So beginning in verse 5, he begins to call those who are in debt to his master to him and forgiving portions of those debts. To the first guy, it says, he owed 100 jars of oil, but it's reduced to 50. And the second person comes in and owes 100 measures of wheat, but it becomes 80. Again and again, the manager is extending generosity and forgiveness, hoping that his actions will provide him relief when he is on the streets, jobless, and in need of mercy. This story closes with the dishonest manager coming face to face with his master once again. Only this time, his master commends him for the shrewdness of his moves. I wonder, does the master realize that he just used his wealth and his resources to his own benefit for relationships in his future? This is the part where we scratch our head. Because Jesus is saying to his followers, the sons of light, you are sorely deficient and something that this example shows us and that the people of the world have mastered. And that is in that last word about the dishonest manager, shrewdness. Shrewd is a powerful thread woven throughout this story. And I'm guessing that most of us don't really feel comfortable with being known as shrewd. I wouldn't. Because most of the time when we think of the word shrewd, we think of synonyms like sly or conniving or tricky or crafty or good at getting money, but never very happy. And as Christians, we don't want to be seen like that by our, by our neighbors or our coworkers. However, multiple times in the New Testament, Jesus uses the word shrewd, and it's exchanged with the word wise. And the most, the most important one probably comes in Matthew 10, 16, when Jesus is preparing to send his disciples out two by two, and he's already told them, hey guys, you don't, you don't get to take your money bags with you. You don't get to take any extra resources. I just want you to be authentic to what I've taught you and use everything you know. And he says to them these words. This is his comfort to them from Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents or shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Rick Lawrence, in his book, Shrewd, acknowledges the dichotomy of the traits in which Jesus is calling us to live and his disciples in Matthew 16. He defines the first part of this, shrewdness, for us in this way. Understanding how things work and then leveraging that knowledge to apply the right force at the right place and at the right time. And then he goes on to say, with that innocent as doves, that our innocence in doing all the right things on behalf of Jesus' kingdom comes without the free, with the freedom of having no guilt of any kind. 
Jesus is telling his followers in this, in this moment, this is your secret weapon. Be shrewd. He's saying, I have taught you about the kingdom. Over these last few weeks, I've even described to you the Father. And now I'm giving you the rules of engagement on behalf of my kingdom. You are going to have to be shrewd, as I have been. And then you will be known in a new way, as attentive, discerning, perceptive, astute, trustworthy, and authentic. And the right actions you take on behalf of my kingdom will make you feel more alive than you've ever felt before. That just sounds so good to me. Listen to Jesus' same words from the end of this parable through Eugene Peterson's The Message. At the end of the parable, Jesus is challenging those disciples to have an impact on his kingdom by being alert and creative and very future-focused. Here are those words. Now here's a surprise. The master praised the crooked manager. And why? Because he knew how to look after himself. Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They are on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. I want you to be smart in that same way, but for what is right. Use every adversity to stimulate your creative survival and to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials so you'll really live and not live complacently just with your good behavior. Wow, live beyond good behavior? Really, really live? I want to feel that in my life. And Jesus is acknowledging this tension of our hearts and being the comparison of the dishonest manager and shrewd. But he's saying, this is the strategy that I have for you for my kingdom's sake. So the big idea of our parable today is this. In light of the kingdom, we need to be shrewd and we need to be strong-minded. We need to follow the example that Jesus used so frequently. The parable of the dishonest manager and his shrewd actions provide for us four strategic kingdom levers that we can use. Levers are tools that when used at the right time and in the right place and with the right amount of force can do the impossible. They can move the impossible and they can engage the impossible person on behalf of God's kingdom. The first of these is the, level, the lever of urgency. Desperation is often a catalyst for using the leverage of urgency. The desperate manager in our parable confesses his weaknesses, and in a level of urgency, he begins to put together a plan of action. Perhaps you remember a man from the Bible named Saul. He was an early persecutor of the Christian church. And he's also a very late round draft pick by God because he meets Saul on the road and causes a conversion in Paul to become a man that's forever changed. And the shrewd mindset that God saw in Saul becomes the shrewd mindset that impacts our kingdom in amazing ways as Paul creates what's basically his manifesto in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 23. Paul describes how he held nothing back and he engaged the impossible people with the kingdom news of the gospel. He says these words, to the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became one as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, but that I might win those who are under the law. 
And to those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in the blessings with them. His work for the kingdom would have him whipped within 39 lashes, just one last breath of his life. But upon healing, he would be edited again, and he would be impacting the kingdom, traveling to faraway places, being shipwrecked twice and imprisoned multiple times. In fact, he would remain in prison just so that he could leverage that moment to present the gospel to Caesar. Like Alexander Hamilton, Paul was nonstop on behalf of God's kingdom. He acted like a man running out of time, constantly saying, the urgency of this hour demands action. Everything is at stake for us. Woven into the fabric of this parable is a kingdom thread. Now is the time for action and repentance. Salvation and the kingdom of heaven are at hand. And in the midst of COVID, we can feel the need for these desperate situations to be met by our Lord and Savior and the good news of the gospel. We may find ourselves in a situation where we've lost work or there's illness or struggling with the loss of a family member or isolation has just left us feeling so depleted. A relationship with Jesus is available and it's not for the short term. It could be for you or for someone you know. Confessing a need for Jesus and accepting his kingdom offers you a forever relationship, a forever home, and a forever future with him. Perhaps right now, through this message, Jesus is leveraging this moment of urgency for you personally. Or perhaps you know someone that you need to leverage this conversation with about the good news of Jesus. The second lever is the lever of work. The dishonest manager moved from his emotional thinking to his rational thinking, leveraging what he knew about his work. It's not that he didn't know his work. He'd just become lazy in his work. Remember the audience in the parable here, the disciples, the sons of light. Jesus was commanding the disciples to take all that he had been teaching them and to leverage this work as they were sent out two by two. And Jesus calls us to leverage our work with faith and assurance in the kingdom. Regardless of our kind of work, whether we're a student or the CEO of a home or working in the service industry, caring for the elderly, or running a major company, we can leverage our work with moments for the kingdom. No matter our work, we can be intentional in growing relationships with honor and respect. And instead of focusing on things like the bottom line or production or sales or efficiency, we can focus on the kingdom and how to care for others, protect the vulnerable, and bring beauty and authenticity, which reflects Jesus' work in the kingdom himself. I hope that you are inspired to think about your work and how can you lever moments on behalf of others knowing the kingdom. The third lever, though, that we see in the story today is that of forgiveness. In the parable, the dishonest manager is leveraging forgiveness of debts to provide care for his own future 
Jesus leveraged forgiveness to make a lame man walk, to make a blind man see, and to raise the dead to new life. Take the example that Jesus uses in Luke 7 when he's sitting with the Pharisees and he brings up a parable. And the two men are in debt to a banker. One owed 500 pieces of silver and the other only 50. And when the banker found out that neither could repay the debt, he forgave them both. Jesus asked the Pharisees, who then would be more thankful for the debt being forgiven? And the Pharisees responded to him, the one who owed the most. Jesus is affirming that his forgiveness is as lavish as you could ever imagine. And the act of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, offering us forgiveness, and the hope of a restored relationship with the Father is extravagant. God used this leverage of forgiveness to redeem us. And when we leverage forgiveness in our relationships, we are also going above and beyond because of the grace that was so freely showed to us through Jesus. Our final lever is that of generosity. I want to tell you a story about Amy Wilson. She's a member of our church, and she and her family have been modeling the level, the level of generosity to their neighbors through an event called Zip Together. Zip Together invites our church families to host friends and neighbors in their backyards with three big theme nights that, that promote play and growing in relationship with one another. Last summer, Amy told me when they hosted Zip Together, they had over 30 people show up in their backyard that they barely knew. But soon as they began to play together, the kids were laughing and the adults began bonding with one another. And when those three big summer events were over, their neighborhood actually took ownership of coming together and other times throughout the year. I love how Amy says, Zip Together was the catalyst for God to open my eyes and my heart to our neighbors at all times. It fueled my expectancy for God to create opportunities for our family to be generous and to care for our neighbors, especially those who were going through a very difficult or challenging time. In fact, one of those neighbors recently dropped off a bottle of Clorox wipes, basically gold right now, at our home because she knew I was trying to find them everywhere. This woman also told me how she prays for our family and often is so grateful for our presence on their block. I was so deeply humbled by her kind words, Amy says. This is someone I hardly know at all, and I haven't invested as much time as I should in her family, and yet now she's reaching out to encourage me. The Wilson Yard during the season of COVID has become an extension of Christ's community. The neighbors have met several times to read scriptures together and to pray together in one another's yards. Even as church begins to reopen and meet, they hope this will continue to happen because now the Wilson boys see their friends have actually become an extension of their family. Church, I encourage us to pray for the Wilsons that these relationships would continue to grow in their neighborhood and that the Wilson family themselves would have more opportunities to share the gospel. And even more than that, that we would take this example and open up our yards to host church and to offer our neighbors the good news. In the parable, the manager used the wealth of the master to secure generosity towards himself 
without the master's knowledge, really. However, God, our Father, and our ultimate master is saying to us, use everything I have given you, your wealth, your resources, your homes, and all that I have to offer to benefit the kingdom. God is calling us to leverage everything that he offers us for the right moment, in the right place, and with the right amount of force to grow the kingdom. The levers of urgency, work, forgiveness, and generosity are powerful tools for engaging others to see and to know the kingdom. Even better, they come with the full backing and blessing of all God has to offer us. And remember, they come with the Messiah's stamp of approval. Shrewd is not an ugly or dirty little word to Christ's followers. Whether it's this celebrated twist that no one saw coming in the most unbelievable story, when our Savior leveraged death for our sins with a promise of eternal life, it is the very daring command of Jesus to live all out on behalf of his kingdom.